0: Hello and welcome to the Skytime podcast with me, Simon Cousins. This is the podcast that promotes Sky and profiles the people that drive the island's economy. It's also a celebration of Sky's vibrant history, culture and environment and aims to gently persuade visitors to spend more time, get off the beaten track and experience more of what our island has to offer. This week I've literally come to the end of the road. I'm at the point of Slate where the road runs out at the Aird Old Church Gallery. I've come here to meet prolific landscape artist Peter McDermott.
1: Thanks for inviting me to the gallery. How long have you been here? We've been here 24 years, Simon. We had the place um, two years previous to that. So, um, yeah, 24 years on Sky. How about that? <laughs> Amazing. And what attracted you to Aird? Well, we were, we were holidaying in Lacauches and uh, was walking through kyle and it was raining as it always did in those days and um so looking for something to do looked in the estate agent's window and there was this this old church for sale and um uh, we were on holiday with my brother and his wife and and uh, and our children and i suggested we should come down and have a look at it which nobody wanted to but as it was raining and there's nothing else to do so we drove all the way down at aird and as we came over the last bray the rain stopped. The sun came out, and it was like the angels sang. And there was this little white church, sort of silhouetted on the on the hillside. And it was like, oh, that's nice. And kind of long story short, before we had finished our holiday, we'd put an offer in and we'd sort of like bought it. So we'd gone home, and it's like, what did you do on holiday? We bought a church on the sky, <laughs> <laughs> and it was still a church. It hadn't been converted oh, no, in any no, way. No, oh, no, 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 no. It had been converted. No, no. I'm a, you know, I'm a creative. I can't, I can't do I do DIY. I think I can do DIY, but my DIY is rubbish. So uh, no, no. It'd been sort of it'd been converted by a builder, and then another couple had come in and done a bit more DIY, which was was not up to the builder's standard. And then then we got it. So all, most of the work had been done.
0: Okay, well, let's take a step back to your early life and career. You're obviously not from Skye originally. Tell me about your
1: upbringing. Oh, my upbringing. So, so I was born in Woking in Surrey. Father was Scots uh, uh, from Kirkintilloch, and my mother is Czech from a place called Trutnov. And I guess that's what the war does, you know, brings um, people together. So we lived in this like bubble, you know, uh, in in Woking, where the house was was full of things from the Czech Republic, which which obviously wasn't a popular place. Back back in the day, because of communism, uh, or it was exotic, let's put it that way, and and then we would get visits from um, from Scottish relatives, uh, bringing goodies from the Highlands, what well, the Highlands from 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 Glasgow, Kirkintilloch, uh, such as pies and um, you know all that sort of thing. So it was a great childhood uh, living up in, in in this in this sort of weird environment. Paintings on the wall by my uncle, Lardia, and uh, as I say, visits from from. Uh, Scottish aunties and uncles, uh, uh, and it was good. So, do you genuinely believe that the creative side of you came down through your Czech relatives? I think it probably did. Mum, my, my, my mother was 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 very creative. She she would always find a way of doing things and and solving problems. So so that solving problem thing definitely was from her, and the creative thing I'm sure was from Ladia. Just with paintings around, and also you know, being of a child of that time, there wasn't the internet. There was limited children's programmes on TV, so you amused yourself by drawing. So that, you know, I was always good at drawing, I think is, is, was the phrase. And was it the aim to become an artist, or was the sensible side of your brain saying, no, I need a proper career first? I, no, the sensible side of my brain was saying I needed a girlfriend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the sensible side of my parents' brain was that I needed to get a job. uh, But I had a great art teacher, Mr Beach, and um, uh, he was another anarchic sort of influence in one's life. He he used to do a bit of filming and was very much into samurais and all this sort of thing. So this was all a very big, you know, very exciting sort of thing for an impressionable teenager. He suggested I should go to art college and my parents were not really in favour of it because their picture of an artist was somebody who starved in a garret somewhere. Anyway, he came round to the house and persuaded them that I should try So I I applied and I was the youngest student on the foundation course that the college had ever had. So I went there just before my 16th birthday. It could have all gone horribly wrong. I could have ended up doing sign writing. Sorry, any sign writers. Or uh, my father was trying to get me into a a draftsman's office doing plans because it was sort of drawing, you know. Uh, But thank God it didn't go that way. And what was your preferred style at that time in your early formative artistic days? (laughs) I guess going to a foundation course, you you go to find out what is the thing that you want to specialise in. And I I actually was there for two years, which was great because you just, you just got to do lots of different things. But I always preferred the more representational side of things and the, as it were, drawing and getting things right. I guess it's, you know, these days... I look at people who, who do abstract work and, and much looser work and, and wish I could do that, but that's not in my DNA. I think my DNA was informed by you know, previous art, art teachers saying, no, that's wrong, you've got to draw it like this. So it's more about accuracy and capturing something, conveying what you're seeing. So that was always the route I wanted to go down. So how did you end up in the design and marketing world? Ah, because they, they pay money. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, it's quite funny, actually. At college, it's, uh, you had the fine art department who were basically walking around in rags. They smelt very strange. I think that was the weed. Whereas the graphic design section, we were very sort of professional, on point, and um, we smelt better. So there was always a suggestion that with graphics, you was going to get some money. Whereas the the, the painters, well, you know, they would die in a garret. So my parents were much more uh, happy that I was going to be doing graphics with the potential of having a job at the end of it. And actually the graphics, again, going back to the problem solving, that suited something within me. I like the idea of solving a problem. So you'll set a brief to try and convey something through a piece of packaging or through a piece of design. And then you solve that problem by coming up with a design. So it suited the creative side and the problem solving side. So who did you work for? Who did I work for? Well, I I, <laughs> I, worked, for, I worked for a company called Centrum Graphics, which was in Carnaby Street. Um, we used to turn up every morning as they hosed down the doorways from all sorts of um, interesting things left behind from the night before. <laughs> and of course, being in the middle of Soho, that had a whole different sort of complexion on the type of people we were coming into contact, not the work. The work was for Thomas Cook and people like that. I then went and joined a company because I didn't feel that they were recognising my talents there sufficiently. Um, (laughs) So being very precocious, I then joined a company called Triangle who one of their representatives had come to my degree show and uh, had left a card saying if I ever was interested in going into the creative side of marketing to get in touch. And Triangle, uh, they were one of the first truly creative marketing companies, came out of um, Young and Rubicum, a big agency, and set up by three guys. And um, they effectively did everything in terms of getting a product sold as opposed to advertising a product, what we call below the line as, as opposed to above the line. And really, I had an association with them for the rest of my working career, I was there for four years, then, then, then I felt that, because uh, I'm a Christian, I felt God was saying that, uh, or I was praying and asking God, you know, should I really be using my gifts for the, you know, for the benefit of commercialism, shouldn't I be using my gifts for you, and uh, he said, okay, and, and an opportunity came about where I went and worked for a Christian magazine for exactly a year, and um, my old job came up at Triangle, I applied for it and got it straight away. And um, I felt the Lord say, "What well, I said, you know, why, why did that happen? He said, well, you wanted to go and work for them, so I'll let you go and work for them. Now you can go get on with your career. So I carried on with Triangle. Then, then um, a part of the, the agency split, I went with them to a company called Team and was their creative director for 12 years. And what were the designs and campaigns that you worked on that you're most proud of? The, the one I'm most proud of was for, for Golden Wonder. So some of you will remember Golden Wonder Crisps. Uh, in fact, actually, we used to work on pot noodle. We launched pot noodles. So it's like something I don't want to talk about. I do have a tattoo on my leg saying I love pot noodles, but that was mandatory for anybody who worked on the brand. Um, the, the, as I say, the best campaign was, was uh, for, for Golden Wonder Crisps and Crisp and Snacks. And at that time, Walker's, crisps were dominant in the marketplace because they just had loads of money to spend on campaigns and so um walkers had just launched some sort of million pound giveaway competition and uh, so the marketing department at uh, golden wonder said to us could you come up with a scheme where we can it would seem that we're giving away a million pounds but we only have a hundred thousand pound budget so uh so it's like so oh right so how do we do that so anyway Um, Cut a long story short, we we, we had three days to come up with an idea and then present it back to the client. And day one, so we're all brainstorming, nothing comes up. Day two, nothing comes up. And as a creative director, the buck stops with me. So if I don't come up with the idea, the best idea, then, you know, why am I in my job? Good question. So I'm in the shower, just about to get out of the shower, and I'm thinking about this thing, and I have an epiphany moment and at the time, there was, a, there was a couple of characters on Channel 4 called Zig and Zag. And part of Zig and Zag's thing was that they, they would collect rubbish and they'd get excited about bits of broken you know nail or, or whatever it might be. And um, I thought, why don't we do a campaign where we have Zig and Zag fronting this and what happens is that uh, in every pack, you're a winner, but you may not want the prize that you've won. and so so what happened was we'd have printed on the inside of the pack so every pack printed on the inside was a prize like a used toenail or um somebody's handkerchief but obviously you know you don't want to send for it but the fun of finding out what you've got generated sales and and it was a it was a great success and it was a great example of thinking in a different way you know it's a it's not the obvious answer but it generated everything that they wanted in terms of sales, but it didn't cost them a million pounds. How do you convince the suits in the boardroom that that's going to work? Well, actually, the guys at Golden Wonder—they were there was a oh, there's a great story I could tell you, but I won't because um, I'll be <laughs> libelled. Um, but um, they were they were as crazy as we were and up for anything. The concern wasn't so much with the client; the concern was with with my account handlers, who then had the problem of sourcing the material because. There will be a percentage of people, as we both know, there are some strange people out there, who will send for somebody's toenail. And so we had to have a, a supply of toenails, or whatever it might be, somewhere in a warehouse, just in case somebody sent for them. So that was a little bit of a headache. But no, everybody, everybody just they thought it was a great idea.
0: In between designing campaigns
1: that involved toenails, how much <laughs> painting were you actually doing? Well, I wasn't really doing any painting. You know, I could, as, I, as I said before, I could always draw. Jane, she was at home with the children and a typical mum in the south of England. She had a little bit of time on her hands. So she, she went and did some watercolour classes. And um, so the with these classes, you could go away for a weekend. And so I would be taken away like the dutiful husband to go and, uh, you know, amuse myself while the wife is on the riverbank doing this watercolour. So I said, I oh, wouldn't mind trying a bit of that tried a little bit of that. Strangely enough, I was the best in the class, although I wasn't supposed to be in the class. And so then I started taking some evening classes with watercolours and going away. I went away on a, a, a long uh, week's holiday painting at a place called Philip's House. It was a defining moment because of, well, first of all, it was only women on the course. There was no guys, which meant that at the fried breakfasts that were being doled out in the morning. Most of the women gave me their sausages, which was lovely. And um, the other thing was that you just devoted yourself to doing what you really wanted to do, which was to paint. And so uh, from that moment on, it was like, well, one day, wouldn't it be nice to be able to just focus on, on painting? And you instantly loved watercolour as opposed to anything else, oils or anything? Yeah, I'd, it's probably because it's an accessible medium. You know, nobody actually told me it's the hardest medium to work in. You know, all these boys who work in oils and acrylics, you know, they make a mistake to just scrape it off and slap it on again. Sorry about that, guys. But, you know, with watercolour, you can't do that. So you have to... The joke of it is you you watch tutors and they they do a wonderful sort of um, demonstration and it all seems to just just happen on the paper. But actually what's going on, they'll have planned it in their head exactly where they make their marks and they know exactly what the water's going to do with the pigment. And, and so this, this ease of demonstration actually behind it is a lot of information. So that's when one realised that actually to try and do watercolours, you've got to start to understand how the medium works. And it, it's just cleaner. I just hate all that stuff on your hands, you know? And how often do you start a painting and make an error and have to scrap it? Well, in the early days, quite a lot. <laughs> I mean, when we moved here... Interestingly, the, the, the watercolours had sort of, they were bumbling along and I was doing quite, uh, doing sort of flower paintings because, you know, you could sit in front of some flowers, they didn't move and that was great. Landscape I didn't do because the only opportunity was to do it on holiday and the stress of taking your gear out and then supposedly, as everybody expects, having a relaxing time painting a watercolour uh, just didn't happen because you'd had all year... Wanting to paint, but you can't because you're working. And this holiday, where you could paint, the stress on producing something which was half decent was so much that, that actually you, it wasn't worth it because it ruined your holiday. So when we moved up here, the idea was to was to paint landscape. And and as soon as I started painting, everything didn't seem to work and went wrong. It's like, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> I've come to the wrong place. I should never have done this. But happily, it all came good. You've obviously got a comp- Competitive edge to you. You entered a, a TV competition. Tell me about that. I thought it was a joke. I thought it was the guys in London having a wind up. This letter came through, typical from Channel Four. Well, it actually was from Planet Twenty Four, who's a production company, and it looked as if it had so been, you know, trodden on by several people before it was put in the mail. So I thought it was just a, a joke from the guys back who I used to work with, asking for people to come to Inverness for an interview. So I uh, went to Inverness the Hotel or wherever. And we were all photographed, not together, and um, from that, that group of people and from the CVs, they, they chose a short list. I think I was the youngest, and off we went. I didn't really know much about it. Uh, what my programmes were some of the last programmes, so before I actually went on the, pro, uh, the programme was made, it was starting to be screened on TV. And we started watching this programme, it's like, oh my God, it's awful. You know, the standard was, was not that great, However, unfortunately for me, the day that I had my programme, the two folk who were painting with me were brilliant. And everybody said, you know, we've not had a standard like this all the way through the programmes, and suddenly we get three people who can paint. And it was like, I wish we could put all three through because it would help the programme along. But unfortunately, only one person could go through, which was me. And how long did the whole process take? It probably took six weeks. So you had a first heat, which was at Clava Cairns, and at the end of the week was the, um, the end of the week um, sort of heat, which was at Corder Castle, won that as a wonderful woman there had a great, uh, great lady there called Joyce. I don't know if she's still alive, but God bless Joyce. And she, <laughs> she was quite elderly, and uh, she was quite nervous, and um, uh, she was quite experimental with her work. She couldn't seem to settle. then she disappeared, and we're sitting on this lawn, and there's these bushes behind us, and she wandered off to behind these bushes came back reeking of some lovely malt, uh, and she got a hip flask. And um, <laughs> she was half cut most of the day. And she was sp- spraying ink everywhere. And we're sitting on, the, we're on this manicured green lawn, and when they took the tables and the, and the umbrellas away, there was this circle of black where, where Joyce had been sitting in her drunken haze, splashing ink around. It was hilarious, <laughs> absolutely hilarious. So there was that, and then there was a, a semi-final at Henley, uh, and then there was a final at a place called um, I've forgotten it because I didn't win, and I'm trying to counselling has said that I've got to get this out of my mind uh, because it will just damage me for the rest of my life. How did you find though having to paint to a time scale? Well, do you know it's television, isn't it? Wait, Simon, you're, you're you're television. You know exactly how all this stuff works. I mean, it's it's a joke. Um, you know they would they would I, what I what I purposely did well obviously with watercolour every mark matters. And so the opportunity to make a mistake was very, very high. So, you know, you'd have a a point where you were supposed to paint for the camera. And then when the camera was off you, you could go and do whatever you want, you know, or just carry on. But but they wanted to have something specific happening when they came around. So you just leave sections of the painting so that you can fill that in for the camera and then just crack on as you cracked on. So actually it worked okay. But the trouble with the, the the final was a difficult day because, as you know yourself, it, when a crew, crew have been together for so many weeks travelling around the country, the last day, you know, for you is the most important day because it's the final. For them, it's the most imp- important day because they want to get home to their wives. You know, <laughs> they've been on the road for six months or whatever. Have... Or, the, or the rat party. Or the rat, exactly. <laughs> you know, so the, the vibe was really bad. You know, there's us trying to paint this... this Award-winning painting. And there's the crew looking at their watches. For goodness sake, come on, guys. You know, it's a, you know, valuable drinking hours we're missing. <laughs> so that was, uh, yeah, that's how it all worked out. So what was the impact of appearing on the programme? A, a great embarrassment for the children. You'd go down to the clan or wherever, and people would come up and say, are you Peter McDermott? We saw you on Watercolour Challenge, which my daughter went bright red. And, oh, Dad. <laughs> I, I've got a great friend down south, Martin Lear and um, who's a real wide, wide boy, Cockney, you know, never been to Scotland, and uh, he was at the top of Ben Nevis with his wife surveying the the scene, and somebody came up to him and said to him, you know, why, why are you here? Which was a good question. And he said, oh, I'm going to see my mate. He's a watercolourist on Sky, not Peter McDermott. Well, that was great. That was a, you know, he couldn't believe it, and he fell off the cliff. Um, so th- th- there was, for a while, quite a lot of people very interested in the work. And even now... There is, a, there is a, an elderly but loyal fan base.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but did it put pressure on you to ramp up production, as it were, so that you had items
1: to sell when people came to see you? To a point, you know, it's Sky. You, you learn very quickly. You need to be doing a number of things to be able to do, get your income. So, you know, at that time, I'm running, I'm doing the watercolours, but I'm also running a bit of graphic design work and so it's always been a balance until quite recently trying to balance doing graphic design and painting so when I wasn't doing a graphic design project for the chimneys or wherever then I'd be painting so my my biggest problem has always been I've not had enough time to have sufficient work available through the gallery but but that's now changing. So lockdown was something of a blessing for you then? Oh, luckdown. lockdown! <laughs> luck luck yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, nothing changes here. You know, it's just me and Jane rattling around at the place with the dog w- was, was pretty normal, except for the fact that, you know, my graphic design side of the business was primarily tourism related, apart from a, a lovely guy over in a lovely company over in Aberdeen, uh, in oil and gas. So as soon as lockdown happened, everything stopped. And actually, everything has continued to stop on that front. So... The draw on your mind, on your, on your thinking, is no longer on graphic design, on solving somebody's problem. It's, it's how do I want to paint? And so um, this period's been fantastic. You know, I've painted more than I've ever painted. I've produced work, which I'm very, very happy with. And the gallery is full of paintings. Let's go through the gallery and start talking about the paintings. <laughs>
0: Okay, Peter, we've come into the, the gallery. Um, I guess it's been pretty
1: quiet the last few months. Have visitor numbers picked up? Uh, yeah, No, it's been good. We opened middle of July and were really wondering what was going to happen. And um, we saw a good number of people. Uh, August was really busy. I mean, Jane doesn't think that it was busy as last year, but I've been stuck in here because she's had her knee done. And um, I've seen a lot of people and uh, sales were pretty good. I mean, there have been a lot of people around in the car park as the local folk would tell you so it actually has not been too bad and it seems to be following the, the normal pattern which is the beginning of September it goes quiet and then picks up middle part of September so we'll wait and see what happens happens then One thing I've always wondered about a, an artist
0: run gallery is do you feel uncomfortable when people are in looking at your your work first of all and then how do you balance the creative response with the commercial reality of wanting people to buy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't think we've ha- I've had anybody come in and say, oh, I don't like this. Because if they do, I just ask them very, very politely why they don't like it. And then we'll have an argument and kick them out. <laughs> um, so no, 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 I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not too worried. And also, you know, with the, uh, the, the watercolours and the graphics, there's quite a mix of different styles that I do. So there's always something that, that appeals to people. So no, no, actually, no, I got over that, Simon. You know, got over that a long time ago. Yeah. Well, let's go over to the, this wall here. It's beautiful landscapes. Describe
0: the, the, some of the paintings that we've got up here and the, the style that you're going for and the, there's a very distinctive colour palette as well.
1: Yeah, there is. Um, I, I, I tend to use a, a, a traditional watercolorist's landscape colour palette and... What I'm trying to do is capture the light across the landscape. So just recently I seem to be drawn into doing a, putting in more detail into the mountains and, and as it were drawing in with the with brush strokes to describe the different folds in the land. And I've got to be careful with that because you can get sucked in and do too much detail. So there's one in front of us at the moment of, of Moscow with light on Moscow and a bit of reflection on the river coming away from Moscow. And then the foreground is very simple or it's just, just a purple wash, uh, but with, a, with some line work to describe something. And actually, if you were to go there, you wouldn't recognize that. But the line work there suggests something uh, in your mind, which makes the whole thing work. And so I'm sort of trying to develop on that sort of theme of trying to keep things simple in the foreground and just focusing on on the, the middle ground where the interest is. And are you painting these on location, or are you taking pictures and bringing them back to the gallery? Because there's obviously a fair amount of rain on sky. I know,
0: seriously, we,
1: we tried location work, you know, and um, if it wasn't for the midges paddling through the wash, and I'm a bit OCD about that sort of thing, I like my washes nice and clean without a lot of protein in there. <laughs> and, um, you know, if it wasn't the midges, it was the, the wind blowing the wash sideways, so I was like, no, I can't do this. Not, not the way that I paint. So I'll go out and sketch the scene um, because it's really important just to sit in the landscape and draw in the things that take your attention and then photograph so that the sketch informs the photograph. And then I work in my what's laughingly called my studio at home. <laughs> And produce the work, which actually is a landing with a nice north light, but it's fine. It's perfect space. And how long will it take you to to paint, say, mask over there? That will probably take a week. That'll take five days. So I've got a great friend Diana Mackie, and she gave me some great advice, which was, I was saying to her, oh, you know, Diana, did eight hours yesterday, and I'm hoping to do eight, eight hours, darling. Oh, good. Just I wouldn't do eight hours yeah just a couple of hours and then have a rest and think about what you're doing and so oh well, thank you for that gave me permission to say well you know when I've got to the place I want to get to stop and go away because otherwise if you paint further into because you feel under pressure that you should be working eight hours you'll make mistakes and it won't be as fresh and as as, as clear in your mind as what you want to do as if you stop and then think about it and do something else So as I say, I I do paint more than a couple of hours a day, and I'm sure so does Diana. So it will be five days. Planet sky washes go in, mid-ground goes in, foreground goes in, and then going back through the painting to, to crisp up anything that I want to crisp up. Obviously, you've got such an amazing array of subjects
0: available to you on Sky, but I guess the downside also is that there are so many painters, so many artists, so many photographers all going to the same locations, is
1: that a challenge, creating something that is different? The good news is, for me, is that um, you develop a style of painting. And so people purchase your work because of your, your interpretation and style of how you've seen that piece of landscape. More difficult, I think, for photographers although there's some great photographers who have their own individual style and ability to see things. And I think, that's, I think that's what it's all about. You know, there are some great artists on Sky and we do paint the, the same subjects, but obviously we all paint them in a, in a different way or with a different medium. There's so many people out there uh, who, who like different things. It doesn't seem to be a problem. What's your all-time favourite? I guess there's, there's one up there at the moment, which is of Camasunery Bay. I, I painted that... About 14 years ago, a very dear friend of mine purchased it uh, uh, who lives down in, the, in Surrey. I was delighted with that. And, and so I revisited the subject this year. And I think this is an even better painting than what she's got. Uh, so I'm delighted with that. It, it, it captures that, that incredible view you get when you're looking down into Camasunary Bay and, and the Coolins in the distance. How do you go about deciding which paintings you're only going to sell as an original and which ones you're going to create
0: prints from?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question, actually. We've now got quite a selection of prints. So I don't make prints from every painting. They, because the print, the folder now contains a good selection of subjects on Sky that people perhaps would like. And so once those editions are finished, which are 195... Then I will paint again that subject and we'll, we'll put that to print. Occasionally with the originals now, you know, if it's a particularly good painting, I'll, I'll do a print of that. I mean, there's, there's one I've done recently of Loch Courouche, uh, which is a, of a very different angle and it's a particularly uh, successful painting. So sometime in the future that will go as a print. But um, yeah, no, these days now, most of the originals go out without being done as prints. And why 195 prints? Well, because it's a limited edition. So in the old days, before inkjet printers came along, you would have to do a limited edition in terms of this type of, this type of work. Watercolours or oils would be done using traditional printing processes. And so it was uneconomical to do a run of 195. You'd either have to do 500 or 900 but now with, with digital printing, A, the quality is just in, incredible. It's Very difficult to tell the difference between a print and an original. And the fact that it's light fast, so it's not going to go blue after three weeks sitting in your auntie's lounge, means that uh, those two factors and the fact that you can draw them off in, in quantities of 10, you can keep the edition the, the down to a very small amount and really make it valuable. And obviously, and and you know, with those editions, once once you've reached the end of that edition, then that's the end. That that painting will never be available as a print again. And what are the next challenges for Peter McDermott in terms of painting? Oh, the next challenge is well, well, autumn is here. Thank the Lord. So I love the autumn. That's your favourite season. Oh man, alive! I love the autumn. And um, you know, it's a bit dreak at the moment, but I'm looking forward to some blustery days. You know. Uh, to get out and, and see the colours change. And also winter, I love the colours of winter, the the, the bone-dry, uh, well, it's not dry, but the bone-dead colours that you get, you know, in late February and, and times like that. So it's getting out and getting materials, getting out and sitting out in the landscape and, and getting new subjects so that I can then crack on and paint. Painting during the, the winter months is not that great just because of the light. You're you, you quite limited window to, to get some decent light to paint by. But this is a time to gather information for new paintings. Finally, for people planning a visit to Sky and want to come to the, the gallery, are you open all year round and what
0: times can people come?
1: Yep, uh, open all year round. I mean, close for Christmas, obviously, uh, and the New Year, recovering from that. Normally open from 10 o'clock to 5, 5.30 if I'm feeling that I can't, don't need to take the dog for a walk. But we'll be open all year. <laughs> Peter McDermott, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Simon.
0: And that's all for this edition of the Skytime podcast. If you have a story or business to promote, email simon at simoncousinsmedia.co.uk. Please also get in touch if you'd like to sponsor Skytime or advertise your business on the next podcast. Until then, stay safe. Aikyavar.